AFIO Now is presented by Northwest Financial Advisors, where our world revolves around you. Hello, everyone. This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with former U.S. intelligence officers. And today I have a very special guest. His name is Mike Vickers. He is a former U.S. Special Forces officer, a CIA paramilitary officer. He has a MBA from Wharton and a PhD from Johns Hopkins Sice. He also served as the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Low Intensity Conflict, SOLIC, and he was the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. He has a brand new book out. It's called By All Means Available, and it is a fascinating read. Mike, welcome to AFIO Now. Thank you, Jim. Great to be with you. Mike, what led you to join the um, U.S. Army and uh, Special Forces? Well, I originally had hoped for an athletic career as a quarterback, pitcher, or outfielder, but uh, that wasn't in the cards. And so my senior year in high school, a international relations teacher uh, put a copy of the New York Times newspaper on, on my desk that day. And we were sitting in the library reaching, researching term papers. And there was an article in it about um, CIA's paramilitary operations in Laos in support of the Vietnam War to interdict the uh, Ho Chi Minh Trail with Hmong tribesmen who were part of a, a secret army. And my teacher said, you might be interested in this, pointing to the article. And I thought... Oh, I don't know. But as I looked at it, I thought I really am interested in this and imagine myself leading secret armies. And so a year or so later, when I came to the conclusion that my sports career was coming to an end, then I contacted a, a local recruiter who happened to be a Green Beret and told him I wanted to go into the special forces. And then I uh, didn't tell him this, but I was thinking after I did that and finished my college degree, I would go into the CIA and it ended up all working out. Mike, how did your 10 years in the Army and special forces, the various training and assignments that you had help prepare you for the paramilitary career at CIA? Yeah, really in three ways. So first, I was assigned the first five years during my enlisted time as a Green Beret to a unit, the 10th Special Forces Group, that was oriented toward um, Europe and the big the danger of a World War III in Europe, uh, with half of the unit oriented, the part that I belong to, oriented toward Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union to try to liberate them or at least halt the Soviet forces in, in that region in the event of general war, and the other half um, doing stay-behind operations in um, Western Europe and Berlin and, and elsewhere to, again, try to slow the Soviet advance. So I spent five years in extensive training for that mission, for essentially preparing for World War III. And number of things. One had a lot of training in weapons, demolitions, guerrilla warfare, even backpack nuclear weapons uh, uh, to prepare for um, uh, this this uh, potential war with the Soviets, learn Czech language to build on my college Russian. And uh, but then was also taught by a lot of mentors. My I was one of the younger uh, soldiers on my team, and we had uh, veterans of, of Vietnam who trained irregulars in Vietnam, but who'd also done very dangerous reconnaissance missions. We had a lot of Eastern European emigres in, in my unit who had 
fled the Iron Curtain and then joined the, the military with promise of citizenship and wanting to go back and liberate their home countries. And so I learned a lot about Eastern Europe um, from them as well. And then um, later, uh, as I became an officer, I um, followed the sound of guns, which was Central America at the time. And so I learned a lot about the third world conflicts. You know, Central America, there were insurgencies going on in El Salvador and elsewhere. Um, we had a program to support Nicaraguan opposition against the Sandinistas. And so it was another heady experience. I worked very closely with CIA uh, during those jobs, uh, participated in some hostage rescue operations um, and more on the counterterrorism side. And those two areas that unconventional warfare or paramilitary covert action, as CIA calls it, and counterterrorism, I would spend a lot of time in the rest of my career, both in CIA, uh, but also then later as a policymaker on those issues. Mike, describe for our audience your new commanding officer at Fort Devens. Yeah, so I, uh, when I was um, in my second year at Fort Devens in Massachusetts with the 10th Special Forces Group. We got a new battalion commander uh, named Lieutenant Colonel at the time, Paris Davis. And he was a Silver Star recipient from Vietnam, an African-American officer who had really distinguished himself. And he, uh, rescuing his team when they were ambushed by a much, much larger North Vietnamese Force and one of the members of that team was another legend of special forces and and CIA experience, uh, Billy Waugh, Master Sergeant Billy Waugh, who uh, served for fifty years between special forces and 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 CIA. And when I read Davis's, I was a young man at the time, but trying to learn about my new battalion commander. When I read his citation for a Silver Star, I thought, why didn't this guy get the Medal of Honor? It's, you know, he was hand to hand combat. Uh, using every weapon at his disposal to save his teammates and get them out. And as uh, fate would have it, uh, this year um, he was awarded the uh, Medal of Honor. He's now in his uh, early 80s living in the area here in the Washington, D.C. region. But I was really glad to, to see that. And, of course, Billy Waugh just passed away uh, not long ago. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mike, what led to the hostage rescue operation in Honduras in 1982? So I was commander of a counterterrorism intelligence um, unit, uh, two special forces detachments that were put together for that purpose and to support our national counterterrorism forces um, should uh, a, a terrorist incident occur. You know, we had just had the uh, Iran hostage taking in 1980 and the failed rescue attempt. So there were a lot of reforms and uh, operations after that to try to make sure we were better prepared to make sure we had the intelligence we needed on high-risk embassies, several of which were in Latin America, but particularly Central America, should a rescue be necessary. So I spent a lot of time on intelligence collection missions and in the counterterrorism area, and that's how I got to spend a lot of time with our embassies and stations uh, in the region. Um, and then in April 1982, Cuban-backed terrorists hijacked a, a de Havilland 7 aircraft, a local aircraft in Tegucigalpa, the capital of Honduras, with um, 58 hostages aboard, including 10 American citizens. And so my unit was asked to deploy to uh, Honduras right away to Tegucigalpa to start uh, 
building the intelligence case around the airfield and then helping the ambassador decide what additional forces he wanted to bring in. Ended up bringing in a, a team of uh, Army special operators um, from the United States. And it was a three-day hostage ordeal that uh, the terrorists let a couple hostages go and then some managed to escape. And then eventually um, it was negotiated uh, at the end to allow uh, all the hostages to go for safe passage to, to Cuba. But it was my first real operational experience, even though we didn't end up uh, having to assault the airplane. Uh, you know, if it were going to happen, the Honduran government wanted to do it. And that probably wasn't a great idea with their capabilities. And hence, then negotiations took primacy. But uh, uh, it was quite a intelligence effort and seeing the how the U.S. government, you know, would send uh psychologists for hostage uh, negotiation advice and a range of things to uh, make sure we had all the capabilities we needed. Mike, what was your first paramilitary assignment after you uh, completed the career trainee program at CIA? So it was actually during um, the career trainee program. I uh, My first uh, assignment, you know, our program had a introductory course and then a couple desk assignments and the director of operations. And then we went down um, to the farm for the operations course and a special operations or paramilitary course. And during my first assignment, I was assigned to Latin America Division in the Caribbean branch. A, I didn't know it at the time, but a senior officer recently passed away named Bill Rooney had asked for me because there were some residual aspects of a uh, an aborted covert action program we had in Suriname, uh, and one of our assets was being held in in jail. Uh, the Leader of Suriname, Desi Bowderze, had done a coup and put a lot, locked a lot of opposition leaders in jail, and one of them was one of our assets. And so at first, when I got the assignment to Caribbean branch, I thought, what am I doing here? You know, this is where people go on vacation. And then the second day, Bill pulled me into his office, showed me satellite photography of the prison, and said, I want you to start thinking about how we could do a jailbreak with some uh, assets that we had. And, uh, and I thought, this is why I joined CIA. This is, this is the kind of stuff I wanted to do. And so we made progress in the planning, but then about six weeks into my um, work, the situation really deteriorated in Grenada, uh, island in the Caribbean uh, off of Venezuela. And over the weekend of October 23rd, 22nd, 23rd, over a three-day period, essentially, President Reagan made the decision to um, invade the island, rescue American medical students, about 600 of them who were attending medical school down there, and topple the communist government that had come to power years earlier. There had been a communist coup that had triggered a lot of, a, a, by the deputy prime minister that had triggered the violence, uh, killing the leader of the, the government, and that then um, triggered the U.S invasion. So I was asked to go into Grenada 
with Bill Roney, who was going to be our, our first chief of station and a communicator to set up the station and going in with all the special operators that I had known who were going to, who had worked, you know, I'd been part of them until recently, who were going to seize the airfield, rescue the governor general, the Queens representative, uh, rescue some political prisoners that were being held in a nearby prison and seize Radio Free Grenada. And some of it went well, some of it didn't. Eventually, we overwhelmed them with overwhelming force. Um, but I was sent to war with CIA before I had completed my operations course training, which raised a few eyebrows on the career uh, trainee staff, but uh, all went well. Mike, how did you first get involved with the CIA's covert action program to uh, support the Mujahideen in uh, Afghanistan? So when I um, finished the training program after Grenada, I had another assignment, a special assignment dealing with the uh, response to the uh, bombings in Beirut. You know, first our embassy was bombed and then the Marine barracks. And so we were trying to identify the perpetrators and develop options that we could do about it. And so I got to learn a fair amount about counterterrorism from a CIA perspective rather than just military. And then after I graduated from training, you know, as you know, Jim, from your experience, you get assigned to one of the DO divisions and a man named Jim Glarum, who was chief of international activities division at the time, which housed the paramilitary branches at CIA under the special operations group, uh, the counterterrorism uh, group, uh, counter narcotics and some other things, uh, covert influence, essentially all of the CIA's covert action uh, uh, capabilities, plus um, some functional areas like counterterrorism, said he wanted me to home base in that division and I could go out to various area divisions for regular operations officer assignments, but would specialize in covert action and move up the ranks um, that way. It was a track that he had been, he had pitched to Director Casey and said I would be his first test case. So I said, that sounds fine to me. And, uh, you know, I said, do you want to do an overseas assignment or do you want to do headquarters? And I said, well, I'd like to do some paramilitary stuff to start. Uh, there's so much so much war going on or, uh, around the world, uh, thinking I'd end up in Central America anyway. So I reported into Ground Branch, the agency's primary paramilitary arm. And then a couple weeks in, I was told that uh, Gustav Rakatos, the chief of South Asia operations in the Near East and South Asia division, uh, wanted to interview me for a job he was creating that would combine the chief paramilitary advisor and the Afghanistan covert action program officer, the officer kind of uh, administering the, the whole program. Uh, one was being done by a senior case officer and another by a Marine Corps uh, colonel on detail to the CIA. And so I thought this was wonderful. I don't know how I had qualified for such a big job, uh, but uh, the interview went well and um, they asked me to come on and, and, and do the job. And so it was just the job of a lifetime for me. I never really had another job like that with the historical consequences that it, uh, it turned out to have. Mike, as I understand, this was fairly early days in our support of the Mujahideen. And you were actually given the task of designing the weapons mix of how we were going to support the, the Mujahideen. How did you come up with that? Yeah, so the war was actually entering its fifth year of what would turn out to be a 10-year war against the Soviets and a little longer against the communist Afghan government. And 
up until that time, you know, the war was sort of a stalemate, but the program had been kind of on autopilot. You know, it had, um, CIA had been very responsive under President Carter's direction right after the Soviets invaded in December 1979, uh, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and uh, had had weapons actually in the hands of the Mujahideen or Afghan resistance within 10 days of the invasion. And the program moved up to about 50, then $60 million a year matched by Saudi Arabia, dollar for dollar, so 100 million to 120 million of an annual budget. But the analytical line was that, uh, uh, you know, the Afghan resistance couldn't win. All we could do was really uh, impose costs on the Soviets. And that was our policy objective for the first few years. And so funding kind of plateaued after a couple of years at that level. And then Texas Congressman Charlie Wilson in the uh, summer of 1984, just as I was completing my uh, operations training as a case officer and then special operations training at the farm, had essentially quadrupled the Afghan uh, covert action program budget from 120 million a year, counting the Saudi contribution, matching contribution to 500 million. And that's one of the things that excited me about the job. And up until that point, we had a lot of challenges um, with the program. We, uh, the Soviet air threat was really, uh, particularly the Hind helicopter, their attack helicopter, was attacking insurgent columns uh, with impunity. We had no weapons that could defend against it. Um, we had put in too many small arms into uh, uh, Afghanistan and not enough ammunition, so the insurgents frequently ran out of ammunition. They didn't have the capabilities to take on um, large uh, convoys or formations. They had to do smaller scale ambushes, didn't have a lot of training. They weren't getting a lot of intelligence, certainly um, from us. And so I set out to try to fix those things. And one of the first tasks I had was to try to rebalance this uh, weapons misc the anti-air, anti-personnel, and anti-tank weapons and uh, some miscellaneous capabilities like demolition packs and radios and other things uh, into a coherent whole to solve that ammunition crisis, to give the insurgents more capability so they could conduct more complicated operations uh, across the board, uh, shelling Soviet bases, for example. They didn't have a lot of uh, rockets and indirect fire weapons uh, when I took over, um, and then expanding the training and, and doing a range of things. But, you know, as I set out to do this, I found that there were no Manuals. I thought there might be stuff left over from CIA's experience in Laos about how to equip an insurgent force of that size. When I had been in the special forces, you know, we were trained as a 12-man team to work with a guerrilla force of maybe 500 to uh, 1,500 guerrilla fighters. And suddenly we had an, I had an Afghan resistance of 150,000. So it was just uh, orders of magnitude above... Uh, you know, what I had been trained to do. And there was just no doctrine, no experience for anything of that size. And so I had to kind of invent a lot working from the ground up about if we had this mix of weapons, 
how often would we want the uh, insurgents to be able to fight and sustain a fight uh, and then derive the ammunition from that. So in those days, I had a yellow legal pad and a real primitive calculator, and I just crunched it and crunched it with our budget until I found the ideal um, weapons mix and, and uh, set out a program plan over a couple years to really build those capabilities for the resistance. One of the things I concluded early on from that, which we'll talk about a little bit later, is that we actually needed more money to achieve the policy objectives that would be given. So within six months, we at CIA now, instead of just having money dumped on us, we're now requesting uh, substantial additional funds, which we eventually got. Mike, uh, describe for our audience your uh, trip to Cairo with Charlie Wilson. Yeah, so very early in my tenure, uh, as I mentioned, you know, we had these core challenges of uh, how to negate the Soviet air threat uh, and then just um, supply a broader range of weapons. And so Gus Abracados, uh, my boss, uh, the chief of South Asia operations, and um, Charlie Wilson and I went to a weapons demonstration in, in Egypt to look at various things. One of them was a knockoff of a Soviet surface-to-air missile called the Sakurai, which the quality control wasn't all that good, and I wanted other surface-to-air missiles anyway. But we looked at the factory and looked at the systems, and then some radios that didn't want either. I ended up liking a single-barrel rocket launcher that we saw that could fire out 11 kilometers and I thought would be a useful weapon. But the highlight of the trip, at least in uh, unusual terms, was... Um, the Egyptians were interested in, in selling us a very, very large 23 millimeter double barreled anti-aircraft gun that you couldn't disassemble. It was on a large chassis and it weighed tons. And uh, they wanted to show that you could operate this weapon in the Hindu Kush. Now, it could certainly take down Soviet helicopters, um, but it was a big, bulky thing. And so Charlie, Gust, and I were invited to one of the highest points in Cairo, which was actually overlooking a garbage dump on a few hills. And we had an Oxford-educated three-star Egyptian general voicing over the demonstration for us, explaining it what was what we were going to see. Uh, we had paracels because uh, it was very hot in in Cairo at the time, and Kentucky Fried Chicken. And we watched Egyptian soldiers trying with a team of mules trying to pull this heavy Soviet anti-aircraft weapon up a few switchbacks and the mules had none of it. And so the Egyptians had, were forced to give up after a brief period. And Charlie turned to me and said, this is the damnedest CIA operation I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> well, we usually don't do them like this, but there was no pressure to buy the weapon. And we ended up uh, doing much better with, uh, with other sources. Although Egypt, was a very important supplier for us for a lot of other weapons. Mike, in your book, you describe four critical policy decisions, operational and policy decisions that were taken in 1985-86. I think our audience would be interested in, in what those were, please. Yeah, so the 1985 was really the decisive year of the war. It was when both we and the Soviets uh, escalated at the same time. Uh, Gor Mike Mikhail Gorbachev had come to power in the Soviet Union as general secretary of the Communist Party in March. And, uh, you know, later he became a 
peacemaker with President Reagan. But at that time, he was really trying to show his bona fides and he wanted to win in Afghanistan. And so he gave the Soviet army a year to two years to win. And he increased his force by 25%. He added 26,000 additional troops to the 105,000 or so that he already had there. And at the same time, you know, as I mentioned, our budget had gone up quadrupled courtesy of Charlie Wilson, and we were now looking for additional funds. And what really made that possible were the four things that you mentioned. Uh, They were really quick. You know, I had done and my bosses and colleagues had done everything we could in CIA with the new resources we had. Um, But we concluded it wasn't enough. And our policy objective was still to um, just impose costs on the Soviets. And the analysts believed that was the most we could do. And so there were concerns in the Congress on both the left and the right, that we were fighting a hopeless war or that we were mismanaging the program, um, that uh, CIA was incompetent, that the Pakistanis were ripping us off. They called it the corruption problem. Uh, you know, weapons weren't getting into um, the resistance that they were being kept in Pakistan, etc. And none of that was true, but we had to counter it. And so a National Security Council review uh, was initiated originally to just try to deal with that problem. You know, how do we deal with the congressional problem and these charges of corruption? And so uh, I had to prepare a lot of briefings for NSC staffers on intelligence showing that our weapons were getting in and the effects and the collection that we had from human sources and others to that effect. And But as a NSC review properly should be at the f- five-year point of a war, you ought to take stock about how you're doing. And so we also reviewed our strategic objectives. And so, you know, it was stay the course, uh, cut back in certain ways. One of them was to escalate and drive the Soviets out of Afghanistan by all means available. And I thought, oh, that's the one we want to do. Uh, I like the phrase so much, it became the title of my my book uh, for whatever it is, uh, almost four decades later. And uh, my bosses at CIA uh, up the line through Near East Division, the DDO and the director of CIA all agreed with that, as did the secretary of state and secretary of defense. And so President Reagan signed a what was then a top secret national security decision directive, NSDD 166, about U.S. strategy in Afghanistan and shifted our goal to driving the Soviets out. In other words, win the war. So we and the Soviets uh, were both escalating then at the same time. But now I had the policy authority to do more. And so that then led to a couple of other things. The first was, if we were going to escalate, you know, we had a covert alliance with a lot of foreign governments to run this secret war from China to Egypt to Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, the United Kingdom and others. And so one challenge was making sure we could get those governments to go along. Would the Saudis agree to match funds at a higher level if we got more funds? Would the Chinese agree to escalate and supply a lot more weapons? Same with the Egyptians and ammunition. Control of the first five years of the program was largely ceded to Pakistan and its inter-services intelligence. Uh, you know, they were the frontline state. They had the most at risk. President Zia had this famous line of uh, it's Pakistan's 
prerogative to determine how much the pot boils, but not have it boil over, you know, to keep the war going at some level at a simmer, but not not get out of hand where Pakistan might get invaded. Very reasonable. But there were things we wanted to do from an Afghanistan task force point of view that we would have to persuade the Pakistanis. So my second task then was to go to all the allied capitals and to try to, uh, sometimes with Bert Dunn, our chief of Near East Division, sometimes with Gus, um, to try to persuade them to go along with these escalations. And with the Western case, uh, British, it was to start introducing more sophisticated Western weapons in, first uh, Western and then eventually uh, U.S.-made weapons. And then, you know, we needed to get more resources. And so if we were going to be able to do all this, and so the third component was to um, ask the Congress for more money. That required what we call a memorandum of notification in CIA, a big expansion to a covert action program. And that got signed off in time. And then Charlie Wilson, bless his uh, heart, uh, found us the additional money. Um, the Saudis agreed to match it. And that then doubled our program um, the funding again. And so then the final stage of this from policy change to winning the war, double another doubling of resources to provide all the capabilities that I thought we would need, getting the allies concurrence for all these changes. And then the fourth thing was to, in terms of uh, fixing the anti-air balance, was to introduce sophisticated weapons technology, first the British blowpipe surface-to-air missile, and then later the U.S. Stinger. And um, and then we did other things like uh, European anti-tank weapons, uh, wire-guided anti-tank weapons, very sophisticated radios that the Soviets couldn't direction find or jam, uh, and that helped turn the tide war. Mike, what impact, if any, did a new uh, COS Islamabad have on the program? So in 1986, after two years of this transformation of the program, and the program had you know, increased in scope by a factor of more than 10 in the tonnage we were supplying, the training throughput, um, the, the dollars we were spending, um, et, et cetera, the thinking then was strategic control had shifted to CI headquarters for a couple years to make all these changes with our global alliance. And uh, our COS in Islamabad had done a masterful job of that. Uh, he doesn't often get enough credit. It was a guy named Bill Pikeney. And uh, he was effective at eventually convincing the Pakistanis to go along with a lot of these changes, sometimes by very clever relationships between the head of Pakistani intelligence and his subordinate for dealing um, with the their Afghan uh, support uh, and others and, and President Zia. And um, just, he did just a masterful job. But then as we contemplated in the end game of the war, shifting control, more control back to the field as is normal practice in CIA. They wanted to find a, um, Bert Dunn and Gustav Ricardos wanted a chief of station who could fulfill that role. And they settled on Milt Bearden, uh, who had come off a couple successful tours in Africa and had been deputy chief of the Soviet East European Division and was an old China hand as well. So he had a lot of good qualifications for this job. And he became chief of station in August 1986, 
Uh, now, the Soviets were already starting to withdraw their forces and talking about being out, but they weren't out yet. And so we had just, we had gone through the process of training the Mujahideen on these new advanced weapons, uh, but they weren't in Afghanistan yet, the Stinger and the Blowpipe. They were just about to go in. And so within Milt's first month on the job, not only is Soviet casualties up and the uh, tonnage of weapons and ammunition that's going in is way up and the training is up and everything else. Within his first month, the Afghans uh, go into the outskirts of Kabul and launch rockets at the major um, Soviet ammunition base, a base called Karga. And one of the rockets got a real lucky hit on some of the ammunition and then it wasn't stored very well. It was packed too close together. And so you got a lot of sympathetic detonations and this whole plant went up in explosions in Kabul and destroying, you know, tens of thousands of tons of, uh, of Soviet ordnance. Uh, surface to air missiles, all kinds of things. And uh, so that was a great start to his tour as chief of station. And if that wasn't enough, a few weeks later, our first Stinger teams were sent in to Jalalabad airfield near the uh, Pakistan-Afghanistan border and shot down three Hind helicopters on one operation, which caused Soviet air operations to cease for about a week. And so uh, Milt, a great chief of station, had a great start to his, uh, his tour. And then the rest of his tour was really continuing to pile on to make sure the Soviets ended up withdrawing all their forces, which they did on February 15th, 1989, uh, right as Milt was completing his tour. I was a chief of a small Near East uh, Division station at that time, and we came back to the States for a Near East Division um, COS's conference, and Milt showed that video. And, you know, today we've gotten used to those videos. It's old hat. Yeah. But I got to tell you, at that time, it was eye-popping. Yeah. We actually had him show it to us several times. It was just so amazing. Well, well, that video, you know, of course, got shown uh, to Director Casey and President Reagan and key supporters on the Hill as well. I mean, so it it got eye-popping uh, reactions in Washington as well, or, or as we like to say, a lot of Allahu Akbars in, uh, <laughs> in, in, in Washington were said at that time. One of the funny aspects of, of one of the videos, though, is one of the gunners, I got so excited, he was jumping up and down. And, you know, so the camera was just seeing shots of him jumping a few times till it stabilized and got, got the right shots. Mike, what did Bill Casey's death in June of 1987, what impact did that have on the program? You know, Casey uh, was really a critical uh, director and he went, along with this massive escalation, you know, for a while, he didn't really believe we could win. He thought the Soviets would eventually grind them down, but he wanted to defeat the Soviet empire. You know, like President Reagan, he didn't want to just manage the Cold War and coexist with it. If there was a way to to end the Cold War, he wanted to do that. And so he increasingly came to see Afghanistan as a vehicle um, that could achieve that end. Um, Bob Gates has a real interesting line in his first memoir, uh, From the Shadows, about his career up to the point of being um, director of central intelligence. 
that, you know, he was closer to Gates writes, you know, he was closer to Casey than anyone thought he knew him better than anyone except his wife because he, you know, served directly under him and been an executive assistant and other things for a while. And he said, but one of the things he never really understood until Casey passed is that while Casey had served in the OSS and he loved intelligence, he reveled in it. He liked reading the national intelligence estimates and the president's daily brief and asking questions about it. He liked, you know, uh, human collection operations, clandestine operations and covert action. But Gates says that Casey didn't come into CIA. One of the things he only realized afterwards was Casey didn't come into CIA to reform it or make it better or anything else as a you know good steward of the resources. He came in to CIA to wage war on the Soviet Union. And so, you know, his contribution was pretty, pretty mighty, I think, there. The good news on that side is that CIA and the Congress and the White House were all in a and uh, our national security partners, state and defense, were all kind of in alignment by that point, by the time Casey passed. And so Bob Gates became acting director and was nominated to be director and then had to withdraw um, because of Ron Contra was still a mess, uh, eventually became director later. Um, but he was very supportive of the program as the acting director and the deputy and had been previously as the deputy director for intelligence. And then, you know, as we changed the guard in the Near East Division and elsewhere, uh, Tom Twetton replacing Bert Dunn, and then Frank Anderson eventually replacing Tom as Tom moved up. Um, they were all of like minds in continuing the program. And then same thing when Bill um, Judge Webster came in as director, you know, he he continued the effort pretty much as it was. So uh, Casey's death could have been catastrophic. It wasn't thanks to the broad support that we had and and mindedness. I would say as well, you know, right before the Soviets withdrew, uh, they drew withdrew a big chunk of their forces in August 88 and the final chunk, February 89, when Boris Gromov, the three-star general commanding 40th Army, walked across the bridge uh, in northern Afghanistan into the Soviet Union. Um, but President Zia and his intel chief, uh, uh, General Akhtar, um, were killed in a mysterious plane crash in August 88. And so they didn't leave, live to see the ultimate um, triumph over the Soviets in Afghanistan either. So there's a lot of tragedy to this war that those who were very responsible for it didn't live to see their, their success. Mike, as the war was winding down, and um, that job was coming to an end for you. You decided to leave CIA and go back to school. Why did you decide to leave? Yeah, so I still wonder today, many times over the years, if it was the right decision. But, but basically, I had um, had the job of a lifetime, and I'd worked with all the top officers of the agency. And a couple of them said to me, you know, how are you going to be happy after this? You know, you've had this unusual job and you may never get another one like this for 25 years or so. And so that uh, spooked me because I wanted to move on to the next thing like this. And then as I thought about it, I realized that, you know, the world is the way the world is and you have these big events and there's important things to be done, but something even semi-equivalent for me to be a chief of station somewhere was still probably a decade away for me. And, uh, I, uh, 
was offered a few good jobs, a chief of base in, in one, but it, it seemed like a step down um, from what I had been doing with the uh, Afghanistan program. And then I talked to the career management staff who told me what I was doing was too unconventional. And I don't know if this was right or not, but since I was an, an operations officer, a regular case officer, as well as doing paramilitary duties, I would have to compete with my Afghan experience wouldn't count for that. I would have to compete with the people who went out to the field and recruited and handled agents. And essentially, I'd have to start over. And so all that kind of weighed on me. And my bosses were moving to other assignments. The war had been won. And I had had an unconventional undergraduate experience, having left college to go into the special forces with not quite two years of college, completing my degree before I joined CIA from the University of Alabama. But I thought, well, maybe I should get some serious graduate education and then come back into government at a senior level. You know, that's what what Bill Casey did, albeit many, many years later. And so that's the path I went down. And, uh, you know, during the 90s, it seemed to me like a pretty uh, wise decision. When 9-11 hit, I thought, gee, did I make a big mistake? You know, if I had just had more patience, I might be in the fight. But then I was blessed a few years later to come back into government at a senior level and, and, and at least do some things, make some contributions uh, at that level. Well, the book is entitled By All Means Available. It's a fascinating read uh, and there's more to come. So I'll invite our audiences to stay tuned. And I want to thank Mike Vickers very much for part one. Thank you very much, Jim. AFIO is a small, nonprofit, apolitical, educational organization whose main mission is to help prepare the next generation of intelligence officers to confront the challenges our nation faces in the years ahead. To learn more or support our outreach programs, visit www.afio.com. Thank you.